Amen. Hey, if you've got your, your sermon notes, uh, grab those. We're going we're gonna to jump into this fast this morning because I've got a little bit more I want to share with you uh, today. Um, but I went and saw the movie The Jesus Music. Have you heard of this movie? I, I didn't even know it was out. and We kind of heard two days before we were looking at uh, uh, the day it came out. And so we decided to go see it. And it's all about kind of contemporary Christian music from 1975 forward. So if you're old enough to remember kind of mid-70 Maranatha music, that type of stuff, um, it kind of chronicles that forward, and it was wonderful. Like, I, I'm one that, I, even though I became a Christian, but later I was in the church, and I remember the music. I remember my youth pastor singing on the guitar these Maranatha songs, and so it was kind of a blast down memory lane. Um, but here's the thing that, that I don't think I want to go too far here, but I think the term wrecked me is appropriate. I got a little misty-eyed. And I had conviction in my heart as well as I was watching it. At every step from 1975 forward, at every step that God was using music to open up a new avenue of people who had rejected him up till now or who had no interest in the church world, at every point, there were good Christian religious people fighting it and opposing it. At every step. And my heart was kind of broken and I just kind of felt like, God, I never want to get in the way of something that you are doing, some way that you are reaching people for you, some way that you're drawing people in who, who had not yet accepted you. And I, I was just really convicted on that uh, in any way. And I thought about this in, in light of working on this message, is it's not always that us as Christians will have something like really terrible or demonic or, or really sinful pop into our life and we will fall to temptation to that, it is often even the good things or the things that God has once blessed or is blessing that we might take out of context or we might put in the wrong order in our life or we might exclude something new God is doing, that is often the things that might get in the way and blind us to how God wants to work and move in our life. You're going to see that theme pop up in this message this morning. We're talking about the thing called Christianity, the thing about Christianity. And we've been tracking just from the beginning of the Old Testament and working through kind of in a survey format. And we're asking the question, what is this Christianity thing all about? And we're needing to do a little bit of a historical intake. That's why we started at the beginning and we've worked forward. But we also need to ask these questions. Are there things that we've assumed about the faith? Are there things that we've kind of put two and two together where God said that's not the proper two and two? And so we're just starting from scratch, working through this whole thing. You've noticed it's been a progressive movement through this teaching series, which means if you've not heard them all or if you've not heard any of them, then this one will kind of come as a continued chapter in what we're talking about. But no worries. Easy to catch up on. Just go to our website and just follow along and you can catch up. And uh, you won't be totally lost this morning uh, anyway. So we're going to just jump right into this. And I want to do this this morning like I shared with you a few weeks ago. I need to put it in three kind of parts that may, that, that may be look a little disconjointed, uh, but they'll kind of come together to hit this theme that we're talking about this morning. So sound good? Hey, if you didn't get uh, some sermon notes and you're in here and you'd like a set um, Leslie Leonard is back there. She's not on staff anymore, but she is willing to run you. Uh, we noticed in her last week she didn't complete all her hours, so we're uh, putting her to work here. And that's not true. Not true. So there's one. That's right. Clock in, clock out. Get that done. 
Thank you, Leslie. All right, that's a terrible joke. Okay, let's just jump right into it. One of the most prominent themes in the Gospels, the four accounts of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is this constant disconnect between Jesus and the religious leaders, the Pharisees. The Sadducees don't show up by name, but they're in there, and other religious leaders. It's constant in the Gospels. Now, it's easy for us to understand that they differed in their interpretation of the Old Testament and they, their interpretation of the coming Messiah or the coming kingdom. Actually, that theme shows up. But it's not always easy to wrap our heads around why these Pharisees, Sadducees, religious leaders hated Jesus. Why these differences led them that far. No doubt, I mean, it, they didn't just dislike him, they hated him. They orchestrated his arrest and his execution. Now, while this might seem over the top to us, or if you're reading, and it did to Pilate, if you read those, the crucifixion time, Pilate's like, where is this coming from? If we understand it from the religious leader standpoint, they had really good reason to despise him. They saw what we sometimes miss. These temple leaders, they did not see Jesus coming as like Judaism 2.0, new and improved. They saw what Jesus was bringing was something brand new. And that brand new to them was a threat to everything that they knew. If what he claimed were true, what they thought is it signaled the end, right? The end, not just a new version of everything that they knew up till now. Now, as modern uh, Bible readers, we see Jesus sometimes as just kind of an extension of the Old Testament. You know, it's like chapter 2, it kind of moves on to the New Testament. But that's not at all what the religious leaders saw. The religious leaders didn't see him as an extension or just a fulfillment of something. They were threatened by something brand new. And on this point, they were 100% correct. Jesus was introducing something new. And it's been the theme that we've been talking about in this series. Part one of these three I want to share with you. One of Jesus' most offensive statements that he made, it's recorded in the Matthews Gospel. Uh, If you've read it before, chances are you've kept right on reading. We do that sometimes. Even few of us notice it. But during one of his, like, squabbles with the religious leaders over what was allowed on the Sabbath and what wasn't allowed, you remember Jesus constantly had this dialogue with the religious leaders. Jesus was referring to himself, and he stated this. Take a look at your notes. I tell you something greater than the temple is here. Infuriating, right? No? Ever noticed that before when you read that? Yeah, probably not. I didn't think so. It's kind of how it goes. For first century Jews, however, no one and nothing was more important than the temple. Nothing. Like, you've got to understand how they viewed the temple. It was not just up here. It was the only thing raised up, the most central and the most important thing. To consider anything else greater than the temple made the temple not just less valuable, It made it useless and worthless. Listen, while there's some places in our life that we consider very special, sacred even, it pales into comparison to what they felt about the temple. For first century Jews, the temple was everything. Not just in their world, they viewed as the world, period. 
And so the temple was the center of Jewish religious life. It was the center not only of worship, it was the center of the official law, as they would call it. It would be the center of where they saw the presence of God began and radiated out from there. That's how they viewed this thing called the temple. So to compare oneself to the temple or to suggest that anything else was greater than the temple, this carried quite a level of arrogance or stupidity or maybe insanity. And so you can see how they're starting to look at Jesus and question. For somebody to claim they are greater themselves than the temple, that was blasphemy. And that blasphemy is actually worthy of death. A threat against the temple they saw as a threat against the entire Israel nation. And so the Jewish people, they would die before they would see their temple defiled die. Like, that's not an exaggeration. Case in point, here's an example. Around year AD 40, citizens of Jerusalem, they were notified that the uh, the statue of Emperor Gaius Caligula was going to be erected right within the temple walls, right? So, a statue of the emperor in the temple walls. And Petronius, he's the governor of Syria. He was tapped. He was said, you're going to be the one that delivers this and sets up this statue. So he takes a couple legions, about 10,000 soldiers he takes, and they head towards Jerusalem to deliver this. He, and at the place where they were picking up the statue to then move on, he was met by thousands of Jewish people. Thousands of Jewish people. And so what Petronius did is he actually threatened violence against them. Hey, get out of our way or we're going to hurt you. Instead of kind of rallying themselves to defend they bowed to a knee, and they stuck their necks out for the Roman blades. The message was very clear. We would rather die than see you set up this statue and defile our temple. Petronius, of course, is outmaneuvered here. He didn't quite know what to do. Armed conflict was one thing, but slaughtering unarmed citizens, that was something entirely different. So what he did is he altered his route. He ignored this group, and he went on a longer route into Tiberias. And though this extended the journey, he still could get the job done. But by the time he got to Tiberias, he was met with an even larger crowd of Jewish citizens. Petronius wasn't sure what to do. In fact, Jewish historian Josephus actually writes about this and tells us a little, gets us a little glimpse of what's going on. Take a look at it in your notes. They're still 100 miles from Jerusalem. This is how he describes what's outside of Tiberias. So they threw themselves down upon their faces and stretched out their throats and said they were ready to be slain. And they did this for 40 days together and in the meantime left the tilling of their ground. And that while the season of the year required them to sow it. Thus they continued firm in their resolution and proposed to themselves to die willingly rather than to see the dedication of this statue. I mean, farmers went on strike in the region. They were threatening the entire economy. Uh, Petronius, I mean, he didn't know what to do. He was at an impasse. So he writes a letter to the emperor asking for further instruction, knowing that not carrying out the orders of the emperor would probably be met with a, a very bad fate, maybe death for him. He sends the letter anyways. I mean, uh, doing what was being asked is one thing, but doing what was in front of him that might look like genocide was altogether different. 
Well, in a pretty uh, extraordinary twist of fate, a handful of Roman senators actually schemed together and assassinated the emperor before the letter actually arrived. So crisis diverted, right? The statue was not put up. So listen, the temple was a big, big deal. And Jesus claimed to the religious leaders to be greater than the temple. This was a problem, big problem. Part two, by the time Jesus reached adulthood and what we know as his public ministry, it's what we read about mostly in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the biggest context of those books, the temple system was completely corrupt as well. This isn't just inferred. We actually see this was written about Jesus actually speaks about this as well, this widespread corruption in the religious community that's found there. In fact, here's a sampling from the book of Matthew on how Jesus speaks about those that are in charge of the temple. Take a look at this. Everything they do is done for people to see. They love the place of honor at banquets. They love their titles. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplace. They neglect, get this, a big one, justice mercy, and faithfulness. They are hypocrites. They are full of greed and self-indulgence. On the outside, they appear righteous, but on the inside, they are full of, wick- of wickedness. Awesome dudes, right? That's how Jesus is describing them. He goes on, and Jesus concludes his remark by calling them snakes and asks them how they thought they were going to avoid the fires of hell. This was a big deal on how Jesus saw them. By the time Jesus was baptized, and then he was raised up to begin his public ministry, temple leaders had created this very sophisticated system of how they, and how they carried out what they saw were the most convenient laws of the Old Testament and disregarded the ones that were not convenient. The ones that weren't convenient, those were especially ones that would prevent them from the financial gain that they actually could garner from the temple. So those in upper echelon of temple of leadership, they actually profit and lived like kings. And you may not know this, but at this time, the temple was incredibly profitable, incredibly profitable. The temple was enormously, enormous in its enterprise, enormous. Here's why. Let me just share with you a couple of reasons. The, the Jewish temple actually benefited from several different avenues of revenue the greatest of which was the temple tax. Are you familiar with this? Do you understand there was a tax? We actually find this in the Bible. There's a little story about about Peter and Jesus needing to pay the temple tax. Do you remember the fish and the coins that are in the fish? This is to pay the temple tax. Every Jewish man over the age of 20 was required to pay this tax. Not just those in Jerusalem, but those anywhere. So if they were outside of Jerusalem, if they were even outside the Roman Empire, they were required to come and to pay this tax. It was about a half shekel. That's a day and a half wages. So why this wasn't huge, everyone had to pay it. So because of this, because people were living everywhere, these different treasuries were set up anywhere, in any city that they could be set up in. And so people would come and they would pay in these major cities or they would come to Jerusalem and pay it directly to the temple. It was so much money that when they decided they had to transmit or carry it from those major cities to Jerusalem, this wasn't just like sending it in the mail. This took something like an army 
of people to send it for protection. Take a look at what Josephus also writes on this. For they made use of these cities as a treasury. Hence, at, at the proper time, they were transmitted to Jerusalem. And many 10,000 men undertook the carriage of those donations out of the fear, the, out of fear the ravishes of the Parthians. Now, Josephus sometimes is famous for a little bit of hyperbole. But even if 1,000 of these soldiers or of these came together to protect the tax, that would be considered a pretty decent-sized army from Jewish standpoint. And all this is to support the activity of these 37 acres where the temple was located in Jerusalem. At one point even, the Roman Senate, get this, they decided, Here's, we're losing a lot of money to this tax. At one point, they came in and they passed a law forbidding the export of silver. Well, this was a problem. You know why? Because the temple coinage was silver. And so they were trying to prohibit money leaving these towns and going to the temple. That's how the Roman Empire. Well, the Jews just responded and ignored it the best they could. But the temple enterprise, they're like, well, we got to keep this money flowing. How do we do it? So what they decided they would do with this is they would find some foreign coin that resembled that shekel that was required. And that's the money that they would require. And so they landed on this money that was in the city of Tyre. And that became, this Tyrian money became the money that you would pay at the temple. Now, most people didn't have that money. In fact, almost all of them didn't have that. So the temple leaders had the money. And you brought whatever you can. And if you've ever gone to the bank because you're flying to another country, what did you need to do with your American dollars? You exchange them. And there's some type of exchange rate when you exchange them. The same thing was happening here. The temple leaders had all the coins that were necessary, that they had deemed necessary. And now people were coming with whatever they had, and they had to exchange. And they had to pay the exchange rate. Well, guess who established the exchange rate? Well, you would guess it. The leaders of the temple. And this is what's going on. So in addition to all these taxes, the money coming in, you now had this other corrupt way that money exchanged in this exchange fee for raising revenue in the temple. This was incredibly profitable. In fact, it was this practice, along with the selling of kind of second-rate animals for last-minute sacrifice, that caused Jesus to raise up and do what we would see as one of the most aggressive things we see in the Gospels. Do you remember the story? When he takes the whip and he starts cleaning house and kicking over tables and that type of thing, you can see this holy discontent Jesus had for what his father's house had become. This power, this politics, and the prophet associated with the temple here, it was out of control in Jesus' time. And it was a recipe for corruption. You throw in religion and people that were telling others how to live, and it was a recipe for hypocrisy as well. This is the season Jesus stepped into. In spite of all this, though, the temple was a big, big deal. It had to be if you were doing all of this to send your money in. And Jesus claimed to be greater than the temple. This was a big, big deal. Part three. One afternoon, uh, Jesus is with his guys, right? 
and they're walking along. You might remember this story. And they're, they're walking along the temple, and, and, and somebody actually comments about just the massiveness of this building in the temple complex. Take a look at it uh, in, in Scripture after, after they speak about how incredibly marvelous the temple is. Jesus says this, Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. Translated, don't be too impressed, it's disposable. That would have shocked them. They would have been stunned. Everyone thrown down? Hoping there was a punchline, but Jesus doesn't give any punchline. You actually read the scripture. When Jesus says that, he just turns and leaves out of the city. Almost like he didn't say anything. Thrown down? I mean, did he really say thrown down? Every single one of these would be thrown down off the 37-acre plaza into this valley below. How could that be? In fact, how would it even be accomplished? I mean, this is massive what Herod has done. In fact, there was earthquakes that were common in the region, and so Herod built it in such a way, it was like an early form of, of trying to earthquake-proof something. How would it even happen? It probably require an army. But the only army large enough to disassemble something this grand would probably have to come from Rome. And you got to remember, it was the Roman client, Herod. Remember King Herod? He was actually the one that built the temple. So it didn't seem like it would come from the Roman army. Perhaps they misunderstood is what they thought. Now, later that day, they're gathered outside the city. They're on the Mount of Olives. And uh, if you know your geography, I actually got to look at a couple pictures this week that you could sit on the Mount of Olives and you could see Jerusalem and see where the temple was. And so as they're sitting and they're looking at this, uh, one of the people that was there, uh, one of his followers, asked the question they all wanted to know the answer to as it was rolling in their head all afternoon, when will this happen? When? Well, we're fortunate because the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke record Jesus' answer. And what actually shows up here, I think, is one of the more remarkable and verifiable prophecies that we find really anywhere. Now, us Christians, we're very fond of leveraging the Old Testament to speak about the coming of Christ. We like to quote Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah, and we should. But this prediction here is so much more convincing than even anything we find in the Old Testament. Here's a taste of what Jesus said. Take a look at your notes. Luke chapter 20. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Let those who are in Jeru or Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out, and let those in the country not enter the city. Now, chances are you've read that before. Chances are you've heard somebody share that in a message before. And chances are when they shared that in the message, they attributed this and connected this to end times, to the book of Revelation. And that's unfortunate. Here's why. Jesus is not predicting the end of the world as we see in the book of Revelation, the final book of our Bible. Jesus is predicting something more local, something that would actually happen in the lifetime of many of those who are listening and even hearing what he has to say. And sure enough, 40 years after Jesus made this disturbing prediction, the soon-to-be-elected emperor of Rome, General Vespasian, he trapped thousands of Jewish rebels inside the city of Jerusalem. This was a culmination of like a four-year campaign to kind of hold the city in check, and to set up his next move. 
And so what he did here uh, was, was actually pretty in, incredible here. He traps them in the walls of their own city and sees them, right? But it's a, an interesting time that he chooses. It's the time of festival where many Jews from all over the kingdom would be traveling to Jerusalem to partake in the Jewish festival. Listen to how Jesus says it again here in light of what we're talking about. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, that's what's happening. You'll know its desolation isn't near. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Get out. Get out of the city. Let those in the city get out and let those in the country not come in. These many pilgrims who are traveling to Jerusalem at the time. At first, the Roman commanders blocked the travelers from coming into Jerusalem, but Vespasian, in maybe a brilliant but certainly a brutal move, said, no, let's usher them. We'll even escort them safely into the city. Knowing more mouths mean the siege would not last as long. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. By the time the legion finally punched through the wall of the city and got in, the population of Jerusalem was literally starving to death. And let those in the country not enter the city. Jesus continues, take a look, verse 24. How dreadful it'll be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against his people. Wrath might even be an understatement. The siege went on. For so long, four years, that by the time they punched through, they had such pent-up anger and frustration that thousands of Jews were butchered. Josephus actually writes about this as well. He says, the slaughter within was even more dreadful than the spectacle from without. Men and women, old, old and young, insurgents and priests, those who fought and those who entered or uh, entreated mercy were hewn down in an indiscriminate carnage. The legionaries had to clamor over heaps of dead to carry on the work of the extermination. And those who were spared, they weren't really spared out of sympathy. They were spared out of greed. They became slaves and were sent off all over the Roman Empire. Jesus speaks about this as well. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now, it's true some secular scholars have insisted that these Gospels are written after this event happened. There's just book and study after study that would refute this hypothesis, and we just don't have time to work through it all this morning. But I understand their claim. Because if this were to be written before this event, these Gospels, if it was written before and it was a prediction, then it's impossible to conclude that Jesus didn't just predict the end of ancient Judaism. And it would be impossible not to take serious everything else Jesus had said. And we haven't even got to the main part, the destruction of the temple. When the Roman legions finally entered Jerusalem, they actually found in the temple district there in the middle, those 37 acres were heavily fortified. But as they pushed in and found their way in this most sacred site, they destroyed the priest and somebody lit the place on fire and everything burned that could burn. That might have been suspected when they punched through. But what happened next was probably unprecedented or not expected. 
Usually you would overtake somebody's temple and then you would claim it as your own. Set up your own religious system if that's what you wanted to do. But Titus, who was now in command for his father, he ordered that every stone used in the construction of the temple be torn down, dragged to the edge of the plaza, and thrown down in the valley below, many of which sit right where they were thrown down today, 2,000 years ago. Jesus said, truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be broken or thrown down. When you read Jesus' description, remembering him sitting on the Mount of Olives, looking out over Jerusalem with his disciples, it's almost impossible not to imagine the pain in his voice, that he could almost hear the carnage and hear the screams and feel the panic of mothers. These were his people. This was his nation. This is the nation that God said through one man, Abraham, I will bless everyone. But that chapter was drawing to a close. The temple era was coming to an end. God's covenant with this nation had served a purpose, a very significant purpose that we've been talking about up till now, but it was no longer needed. Why? Because something greater than the temple had come. Jesus himself was declaring himself that, and he was here. Something that would make the temple and everything associated with the temple obsolete. Something new, something better, something greater, and something bigger. That's how Jesus described himself and what he brought. Something for the whole world. Ancient Israel had been a means to an end. We've been talking about that each time the end had now come the new was just beginning. You know, when I look back, God had great hope for the religious leaders. I believe that. But like we do sometimes, we can cling to something that's been good, something that's been a great avenue, or something that God has worked through or wants to continue. And then we can cut off anything new God is wanting to do. Sometimes for us as Christians, we can do that. We can cling to our past years of our Christianity or the prayer we said at high school camp one day or that time that we really got moved by a worship service or the time we did the one service project or we brought the one friend to church or all those type of things and forget that it's today that God wants to do something new in your heart. That the Christ that was coming here, establishing something new he actually wants to do that in your life and my life every day. And just like me watching this movie and my heart being wrecked by the idea that I never want to miss a way that God wants to speak and God wants to move. It could be this morning that you're in some way, though not a great comparison, like these religious leaders who have closed off Eyes to see and ears to hear what God wants to do today in your life. What God's calling you to today. How God's convicting you on something to confess today. Or something to give up today. Or something to change. Or somebody to go talk to about Jesus today. I'm so impacted by this passage as we've been looking at in this series and probably God using that movie to tell me, Tom, go see what new I'm doing and jump on board and be a part of it for yourself and in your own life and your own surrender and transformation. 
but in the life of those who have yet to hear. And my prayer this morning, you would join me in that also. Next week, we start, what is the brand new? What is it Jesus is bringing? And we'll continue on next week. Catch up on those online if you need to. Let me pray and lead you in a, in a prayer this morning that I think could be impactful for us. Father, my only request in this prayer, my only focus in this prayer is that everyone in here could, just before they leave here, even in this moment, could strip off and say, Lord, just this simple prayer, Lord, do something new in my heart. Do something new. Lord, my heart is willing and I'm open. Do something new, Lord. Do something new. I pray that in your son's name. Amen. Hey, that's a dangerous prayer because we